0: Welcome, everyone, again to another episode of the Surma Pod. This is the podcast for the Sports and Entertainment Risk Management Alliance. I am the founder and CEO of Surma, Rich Lankov, also the host of this podcast. And we're very honored today to have a very special guest with us to discuss the lessons from the Ed Sheeran trial, uh, Professor Judith Fennell, welcome to the pod
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: So prof- I'll give you a little bit of background on Professor uh, Finell. I can only give you a little bit because it's an incredible resume, but Professor <laughs> Fennell is musicologist and the president of Judith Fennell Music Services, Inc., which is a music consulting firm in New York and L.A., founded 25 years ago. Uh, uh, Professor Fennell has testified <laughs> in a number of music Uh, copyright cases, including being the testifying expert for the Marvin Gaye family in not this case, but another case brought by the estate, the, of course, uh, Milestone Blurred Lines case in federal court. Um, As I mentioned, she's testified in many other notable copyright infringement trials over the last 20 years. Uh, She and her team of musicologists regularly advise companies like HBO, Lionsgate, Gray Advertising, CBS, Warner, Disney, and many others on musical uh, works for their commercials, films, and TV series. She also advises a number of other uh, leaders in the industry, including uh, record companies, publishing firms, artists, um, and uh, attorneys, many others. Uh, She was invited to teach the first course ever in the country on forensic musicology at UCLA in 2018. And uh, she is widely seen on a number of media outlets. And we're very pleased, again, to welcome Professor Fennell. Thank you very much. So, Professor, we're talking about a a lawsuit here filed by the heirs of um, the Let's Get It On song that was written by uh, Ed Townsend, who claimed that Ed Sheeran unlawfully employed the heart of Uh, Marvin Gaye's song, in this case, again, Let's Get It On, in Ed Sheeran's 2014 hit, Thinking Out Loud. Explain to our listeners and viewers a little bit more about the allegations of this lawsuit.
1: Yes. um, So this lawsuit, in essence, came down to a four-chord series that um, the two songs had in common. One of the four chords wasn't identical, but three of the four chords were very close to one another. And that series of chords was played repeatedly through both songs, and that was really the similarity that um, Ed Sheeran was a- accused of having imitated or copied from "Let's Get It On." Uh, I mean, that sort of it boiled down to one one singular sort of similarity. No melodic similarities that were identified. No vocal, you know, vocal lyrics. No bass lines, etc. It was one series of four chords, and in essence, the outcome was that the jury found them to have been independently created by, it was the legal term, um, by uh, Sharon. In other words, that he didn't copy Townsend. The truth is that the four chords were not original to Townsend. uh, There was what you call prior art. Many, many examples throughout music history going back centuries of this series of chords.
0: Yeah, I think there was evidence that at least 100 prior examples of similar chords, you know, I don't know much about music aside from what I I read in, in, in articles like this, but maybe you could explain in your role as a musicologist professor sort of what you're trying to prove when you allege that someone steals chords. What does that mean? Um, you know, in right. you well, can. it's very complicated, I know, but what does that mean?
1: Well, what you're trying to do is show the, the legal requirement is that you show substantial similarity of expressive elements of a piece of music. So the law, copyright law, straightforwardly, covers certain elements of music and not other elements. So on the part of the people asserting the similarity, they're saying that these four chords were so baked into the identity of the earlier song and the other song took that essence. But that was the only similarity they found and copyright mostly covers melodic and lyrical and other kinds of content and to some extent what you call supporting chords. But this was a very uh, what you might call a weak case because there wasn't really identifiable um, idiosyncratic um, elements here that were unusual with the first song that were uh, echoed in the second song,
0: in my opinion. So in addition, Professor, to some of the more technical requirements of proving this allegation, which in this case the plaintiffs failed to do, how important is it, do you think, um, as a plaintiff in these kind of cases, in proving that the substance of the material is also similar? In other words, does, is it relevant to the jury um in terms of what the lyrics say, the story behind the lyrics, those kind of things, and did that come into play in this case?
1: The substance wasn't there. That was the problem. I mean, in other words, the things that make one song distinctive from another when it's written in a similar genre, and, you know, um, Ed Sheeran's known for doing medleys of songs that he relates to, and and he did that, of course, in this in this case publicly between these two songs he toggles between them because they do have certain what you think of as skeletal underpinnings, but, you know, it's like two paintings of a tree. You know, did they copy the tree from the earlier artists? Well, not necessarily if there are, you know, 150 artists before this first artist who also painted trees. And by the way, are the trees the same color or the same, you know, um, demonstration of a tree's expressiveness in terms of the way it's leaning and 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 other elements so just basically this was like saying well he copied a painting of a tree as a a concept
0: professor you mentioned, you mentioned the medley it seemed as though the plaintiffs felt that that was a smoking gun this video that's now yeah. been seen by lots of us where ed sheeran is playing uh his song yeah. um thinking out loud and then he goes into a medley of the song in question let's get it on and, and again right. the plaintiffs seemed to think that the jury would hone in on that and think that was evidence of him copying. The jury didn't quite see it that way, nor it sounds like to you, if you were maybe consulting in this case, tell us why that wasn't as compelling as perhaps the plaintiffs wanted it to be.
1: Well, because on a technical basis, if two songs have a similar series of chords that change at the same pace, in other words, like they're held for a certain number of beats and then the next chord comes the next chord and you have that series, the only Part of the vocal melody you could sing over those card, chords have to what you call harmonize. So it has to take, um, it, otherwise it sounds terrible and dissonant. So anytime you have a series of four chords, there's going to, uh, you could mash up or play in sequence either, you know, one after the other or all together. Two or three or four songs, and they could seem to intermesh, but that doesn't mean it's been copied. It's because they share some of the same musical bone structure, I would call it.
0: Professor, very famously now in this case, Ed Sheeran, the defendant, came in with a guitar, and not only did he testify, he actually played and explained to the jury his um, structure and how he comes up with these kind of melodies and rhythms and songs. And at least according to one juror that spoke publicly, that was very compelling. We don't know if that was the most persuasive piece of evidence, but certainly, listen, we all know as litigators, I'm a litigator, we know how important it is to gain a jury's trust, and sometimes star power has a lot to do with that. How much influence do you think that had, his testimony and his guitar had, on the ultimate victory that that he had in this case?
1: Well, there's the emotional and, you know, subjective reaction that jurors have to seeing somebody who's as beloved as Ed Sheeran. I mean, the the sheer charm of it and the sort of um, genuineness of it in terms of talking about, you know, also, I think, missing a grandparent's funeral because of this trial. He was a very um, sympathetic witness. This doesn't always happen. Excuse me. I've seen it backfire many, many times in many trials where it may be a renowned, you know, performing artist, but maybe not necessarily the best uh, personality in front of a jury. <laughs> in this case, it worked uh, in their favor, I'd say. And it overrode whatever this objective information they were hearing from, say, the uh, plaintiffs' uh, experts, for example. I mean, they had, I think people have an emotional reaction to music, I and mean, that's part of what it conveys, and the so-called lay listener, which is the jurors who aren't musically trained, they're not analyzing why they're reacting. They're just reacting. And I think in this case, it shed a positive light that was impossible to um, ignore uh, toward, you know, Sheeran.
0: Professor, speaking of the experts, there were dueling experts in this case, as they're in many of these kind of cases. You, again, we talked about earlier, you were the testifying expert for the Marvin Gaye family in the Blurred Lines case. Talk to us about some of the challenges in explaining your position to lay listeners, as you mentioned, which is the average juror. Very technical stuff, um, very involved. So explain to us sort of how you, in your roles a musicologist, as a testifying expert, have to cut through some of those technicalities and explain this in a way that is persuasive to an average juror.
1: That's the ultimate question. I agree. The The real challenge as a musicologist in these cases is basically to be an educator and a communicator, <clears throat> excuse me, and to understand both what the law protects in music and what it doesn't, and how to explain it to people where if you were to play, say, a clip of a recording of a hook of a song like a Marvin Gaye, you know, Let's Get It On or something – an average juror that has no musical training isn't thinking, "Oh, that's an F sharp followed by the next note, followed by the next," and they're playing it over this court. I mean, they're just listening and taking it in. And then you play another piece of music, and they'll have an instantaneous reaction: "Oh, it sounds similar or not." But they don't have the training to di- to, to dissect it enough to make the legal decision. They're making it based on their subjective uh reaction to it which in the end is is what carries the day so the challenge for the technical expert like myself is to cut through that a little bit and help them understand what they're hearing so they can listen i mean in my case in the blurred lines case for example we weren't allowed to play the recording by marvin Gaye, and that was true here by the way too in this case And so luckily, my background is as a a pianist, so I was allowed to play in the courtroom, illustrate with a keyboard elements that they couldn't hear on the recording um, so that the jury could gain an understanding of what they should be focusing on. I mean, that to me is the objective kind of responsibility of of a music expert.
0: Professor Ed Sheeran, the defendant in this case, has been the subject or has been a defendant in similar lawsuits in the past. 2016, 2017, his songs Photograph Uh and um, Shape of You were alleged, again, to have copied other songs. Right. Is that information the jury sees um, and how influential do you think their knowledge of that might be in their decision? Obviously, in this case, it didn't sway them. But, you know, at some point when people think of Ed Sheeran, people are going to be thinking that he is at least involved in litigation. Do you think that has any effect on jurors?
1: Um, You know, maybe a juror psychologist is, is more qualified. I would say this, though, that you can't really insulate them from hearing about this. I mean, I remember in the Marvin Gaye Blurred Lines case, the judge looked straight at the jury every day because we weren't allowed to play the recording due to a technicality of the law. And he said, thank you very much, Uh, please. You know, they weren't sequestered. Thank you for serving. Please do not go home and listen to Marvin Gaye's song. Well, I don't know what they did. You know, one of the jurors was a DJ. You know, so I mean, chances are some people listened. And also they've been exposed to information, whether they want it or not, through the press. I would say, so maybe that influences. I'm not really sure it did, though, because it was actually handled by the Sharon parties and publicity uh, parties that support probably that team, um, you know, this concept that he'd been unfairly attacked. His music itself is very eclectic and built on other music, and um, probably one of the reasons it's popular is it sounds familiar to people. So there's that that really uh, thin line between copying, you know, misappropriating and simply, uh, you know, building on the shoulders or something else, but not deliberately copying.
0: Uh, Professor Ed Sheeran, in the wake of this victory, said he was happy with the result, but that overall, these kind of cases are very damaging to the songwriting industry. He pointed to the volume of songs being released daily. He said that there's only so many notes and so few chords used in pop music. It's bound. There are bound to be coincidences when... 60,000 songs being released every day on Spotify. Um, Do you think in the wake of the Ed Sheeran victory, and also in the the wake of the Blurred Lines case that you testified in, do you think these kind of cases are on the upswing? They certainly seem to be on the upswing in the news, or do you think um, the fact that Ed Sheeran stood his ground and won will have a chilling effect on similar litigation?
1: Great question. Um, I would say two things. One is... Um, I would say that those accused always cite that there are only 12 notes in the Western scale. There are only so many rhythms. There are only, so, you know, the, the, their defense is always, well, I only have a few things to pick from. You know, there are only three, two or three chords in rock and roll, et cetera. And all of that happens to be true. But I'd say there's always actually room. And that's what the copyright law encourages for originality. And that those distinctive songs are the ones that last, whether it's, you know, songs by the Beatles or others we've heard over the years. And the ones that tend to ba- basically take a little bit from a multiple other uh, song group often don't last. So I'd say as far as it having a chilling effect. I have seen an increase in lawsuits, but that's for a lot of other reasons, including what's called access. The ability to use social media to post music and not depend on a record label for an unknown artist, for example, has enhanced their reach in the world. But it also has increased the lawsuits because it's hard for an artist to say, I've never heard that guy's beats. I don't know why it happens to be on my, you know, big you know, hip hop record that just won a Grammy. Um, Just coincidence, I guess, you know, but when it's dead on, you know, identical, it's possible that that person or some of the producing team actually utilized something that was easily found, you know, and put out there as a way of enhancing a young career. So I'd say maybe it has a chilling effect, but there are legitimate cases in which People have been copied from and not been fairly compensated. And I say there's a significant number of those still.
0: And it's generally true that only successful musicians are getting sued, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the remedy that most are seeking is monetary. And uh, we're not seeing lawsuits um, against unsuccessful musicians.
1: Well, I mean, it's true that once a successful musician, whether it's George Harrison or Katie Perry or um, Madonna who sued herself at one time etc I mean they they do rise to the top and it becomes well known and of course that they may be the targets of other, others but um, there's such an imbalance that one of the reasons why so many win sometimes it's musically legitimate that they win in my opinion but sometimes it's because the there's an imbalance in the industry in which once you know the the uh, well known musician often has a whole team of attorneys and executives at record labels and publishers and publicists to handle their position and experts to testify. And the other side may have one, you know, sole practitioner attorney who may or may not be expert in copyright, which is a subspecialty that most attorneys don't focus on. And um, so there's an imbalance in, in that way, and that there's a new copyright small claims board that's trying to address that. And I'm not, you know, it's only been in existence for a year, so I'm not sure if it will.
0: Professor, last question here on the CERMA and we really uh, appreciate your valuable insight into this issue. You advise lots of musicians, lots of publishing uh, firms, recording companies on, you know, on dealing with these issues. Is there advice you give to these entities in advance of litigation to avoid uh, being accused of the thing that Ed Sheeran was accused of here.
1: Oh yes, I'd say about half of my team team of six and myself, Our work is to review pre-release of records or film scores or ad agent ad agency a music that's being used to determine if if it's risky and if it has possibly infringed something. And often we recommend against it. And also about a quarter of our work is to assess cases that are being considered before they're brought by plaintiffs or defendants, sometimes defending themselves, in terms of the strengths and weaknesses that would likely carry the day. Um, really only a small portion of cases actually see the light of day in a courtroom, in, in my experience.
0: Professor, it must be fun to go out to a concert or to a bar with you and your team because I bet every song that comes on, one of you could identify a, a risk in there, not necessarily infringement, but there's probably you're probably so tuned in that you could probably hear a risk in almost any song.
1: Oh, well, sometimes. And I wouldn't say almost any, but there's plenty of them out there. And plenty of them get away with it, by the way, because it's either never considered or, you know, the uh, potential plaintiff has doesn't hear it. There are many reasons, but a lot of, of a lot of the cases are unfounded. You know, it'd be somebody saying, "Well, he copied my idea about you know being in love and being abandoned at the altar on my wedding day, etc." It has to be more than concept. It has to be really the concrete way it's expressed, you know, in words and music uh, to really go forward
0: that's prof- Professor Judith Finnell. The website is jfmusicservices.com. You can see her all over media and today on the CERMAPOD. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Nice to meet you. Ideas, strategies, and opinions represented
0: on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not represent the ideas, strategies, and opinions of their employers.